Hello and welcome to Crystal News, a podcast where you can learn English and also learn about the international news. This week we have a special guest, so before we introduce to him, I would like to thank Andrea for being here. Thank you for letting me be here. Thank you, thank you. Okay, thank you. So, what about our special guest? How do you feel about that? our first special guest, Andrea? I'm pretty excited. This is very new for the podcast. And this is a person that I know for a long, long time that I really appreciate. And he is kind of like a politician. I would like to say that he's kind of like a politician. I volunteered okay. two times for the Bernie Sanders campaign and knocked doors. So I'm practically the president by now. Yes, of course you are. <laughs> well, what is that's the best part, not the campaign. Yeah, it was fun. Um, you know, you, like during that Democrat primary in 2020, I was so online. I was constantly on like Twitter and Reddit and all these dumb websites, just just like immersing myself in other like super passionate and dumb lefty kids. And campaigning for Sanders was really nice because I actually got to go out in person and talk to normal people and actually ground all the issues and everything in a language that wasn't, oh, socialism and tax the rich, guillotines, uh, like it was actually having to ground things in real life issues. Okay, so if you don't mind my question and if you don't want to answer, that's okay, but why Bernie Sanders? I mean, I always ask why a certain politician, okay? It's not just against him or her. It's just, you know, why Bernie Sanders? Why those ideals? Totally. So I uh, supported Bernie Sanders back then because I used to consider myself a democratic socialist. I still support Bernie Sanders. I still wish he was president, but now I've moved kind of more towards the center. Um, I guess for Bernie, it seemed like a lot of his proposals were things that America desperately needed, a universal healthcare system, whatever form that came in, more affordable college education, which is something that personally affects me and my family, uh, paid child care, paid parental leave, you know, all these things that we take for granted in countries with social safety nets that America, for whatever reason, just does not have. Hey, well... I mean, wow. that's interesting. No, you, we, we assume that uh, in the U.S. they have those, uh, at least the healthcare, no, we expect a, a better healthcare system. But I think that that's one of the worst fears that the U.S. people have to be in the hospital for so many times and the hospital bill is so large that they cannot pay it. It's insane. Yeah. So in Mexico, you know, you have AMPS and East Day for uh private and public sector workers respectively and then Seguro Popular for anyone who isn't caught in that and then on top of that you know private coverage for whatever isn't covered by that or if you just want you know to a higher quality service in America it's mostly private you know there are public ran hospitals but there isn't like this program like Eames or Eames Day in Mexico where there's a government insurer that you have to pay into in exchange you you know, are, you are uh, entitled to benefits. Um, there's Obamacare, which does subsidize it, you know, but it's a pretty flawed solution and doesn't compare to what they have in, say, Europe. Wow, point for Mexico. Points for Fox, because... Thank you, Fox, for being super popular. 
to grow football there. And screw you, AMLO, for uh, botching the Insavi rollout. Yes, screw that. Because Seguro Popular was so good, but he made the... I don't even know what the name has because it's horrendous. Like, the whole branding, name, image, the whole infrastructure, the whole planning is horrendous. Really, really horrible. It sucks. Fuck you, AMLO. I mean, we can agree that at least they have a... We, they had the people with no insurance, at least they had an opportunity to treat. Now, so many treatments with cancer, breast cancer, especially in Querétaro, for example, with uh, FUCAM. Now it's gone. So there's no more support for those chemotherapies. But uh, uh, we still miss three more years of this present. Uh, Yay! I'm sure we'll make it, hopefully. Hopefully. That's hopefully. the first word, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, Andrea, please tell me, what's our first topic? So, in the first line, we have something pretty interesting and maybe it's something unknown by our listeners. So, Connor, could you tell us what is that infrastructure bill and why is it so important in the U.S.? So, the infrastructure bill, you mentioned that a lot of people don't know about it. That's kind of by design. The whole process that Congress and Senate are going through to make it happen is so convoluted and boring and intense that normal people just don't have it in them to follow it. So basically, there's really two bills. There's the infrastructure package, which is a $1 trillion bill. It's bipartisan, and it has support of some Republicans and pretty much every Democrat. And then there is the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, which is partisan. Um, only Democrats support it. And it's pretty much their way of trying to get as many stuff forced through possible without Republican votes. Okay, so this, I'm sorry, this, uh, I so far I know this was approved already on the House, right? With 420 votes or something like that. So now it's going yes. to the Senate. Yeah, it, there's like a big of a back and forth between the Senate and House on it. Um, so right now, the well, what, what progressives in the House are doing is are saying that they're not going to vote to pass the infrastructure bill unless they also get to vote on the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill right before that. You know, what they're saying is we don't want to just, you know, half-ass it pass this moderate bipartisan bill and not get what we really want. We want the full package. And that's having some difficulties in the Senate because of two senators primarily, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, who are considered to be more, you could call them bipartisan, I prefer like conservative Democrats. Um, they've raised a lot of concerns about you know how we're going to pay for it, or that's government inventory overreach, that's not like letting Republicans get enough of a say. You know, basically right wing talking points, but from someone with a D on their name. Okay, it sounds kinda interesting. Very, very interesting. So, um mm, I don't know how to formulate this very well, but if you could set us an example of how could be the infrastructure bill, like in Mexico, to understand this a little bit more, I would appreciate that. Okay, so 
you know, when AMLO ran for president, you know, his whole idea was Cuatro Day, the forced transformation, like kind of like a new deal for Mexico with all these social programs and infrastructure work, the Tren Maya, you know, Hovindas Construyendo the Futuro, this whole package. Um, the infrastructure bill is Biden's attempt to get his agenda through like that. You know, Biden, he had this idea, the American Jobs Plan, and it was originally proposed as a somewhat surprisingly progressive piece of legislation. It's a $15 minimum wage, lots of infrastructure investment, you know, expanding the social safety net, a lot of really good policies. But, you know, unlike AMLO, uh, Biden, you know, doesn't have such a strong grip over the legislative branch. So it's been whittled down considerably since then and split pretty much into two different bills. But I mean, how much, so they're already passing the House. In the Senate, how many votes do they need? Do, do they need the 51 votes or do they need the two-thirds plus one votes? So um, technically, you only need 51 votes. But before they bring it to vote, they have the debate. I mean, they have this in Mexico too, you know, where the politicians, you know, have their time to speak and argue for or against the bill. Or in America's case, they can literally talk about whatever they want. And in order to stop this debate stage, you need, I believe it's like a five-ninths vote, and that's when they'll bring it on to like actually voting on it. So in effect, you need a five-ninths approval to actually bring a vote, uh, something to vote. And that makes it more complicated. You know, you need like you need Republicans to say, okay, we support this version of the bill, and if not, somebody can literally just stand up and talk for eight hours straight or more until they give up. There is a case now of one that it really stood like for two one day or something like that, not a very long time. It's happened a lot. Um <laughs> the filibuster is a pretty effective tool if you're in the minority party and you really want to stop something from happening. I think it was Ted Cruz who was famous for that. Um I know Bernie Sanders did it too. It's pretty common among both parties. And uh it's really interesting too, because the actual rule that you can do that can be changed just by a simple majority, 51 votes. But since both parties have used it historically, nobody really wants to be the tie-breaking vote to actually abolish that. Wow, I think I would be the person that talks for hours, for hours and hours. I think just to bother, like, yes, I don't want this to happen, so I'm going to talk about That's my life. That's literally the point. <laughs> yeah. You like you you get up on stage you know you get some people to support you to not vote you know to shut you up and people have like brought boards with internet memes on there i think ted cruz literally read dr seuss books to his kids watching at home it, it's it's a part of the senate tradition at this point i mean if if i could do it for example there is this book that i have here that it's called russia with common sense Okay, so it's 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 about the uh, Russian Revolution. So I could stand up and say, the launchment of the first Sputnik at that orbit in 1957. I can do it for as many hours as I can. That's amazing. I mean, that's a yes. that's a a really good joke as a politician. Yeah, it's it's wild. Um, and there's been some talk to change the rules for it specifically to pass these bills. Um, there's like already some exceptions. For example, if the president names someone for like Supreme Court, you can't filibuster that. You just need a majority to shut up the debate and get on vote. Um, so there's a, there's a major voting rights bill that's that they're trying to pass right now. 
and Democrats wanted to change the rules. So for voting rights legislation, you could also just, you know, simple majority, shut up, we're voting on it. But Joe Manchin specifically said, um, no, um, Democrats have used this during Trump. Trump actually wanted to change filibuster rules too, and you guys opposed it. So I'm not changing it. I don't fully agree with that position. I think Republicans play dirty. They already do. So Democrats, if they don't play dirty, they're just going to get rolled over. But we got Kirsten Sinema and Manchin in those seats. So no matter what, we have to deal with them. Okay. Yes, rule of life. You need to stand up or you're going to get screwed for that. But talking about, about the infrastructure bill, Uh, which are the points that are you most interested about? So there's a lot of really good things in it. For example, modernizing infrastructure like bridges and roads to be climate resistant. You know, we've seen what happened in Texas earlier this year, you know, during that big snowstorm. The whole electrical grid just shit itself pretty much, you know, which was amazing. Like, how does that happen in what's supposedly one of the richest countries in the world? Um, I come from Michigan, so it's kind of also something you see a lot. Michigan is notorious for having awful roads. Um, and then finally, the one thing I'm really, really caring about right now is child care reform. Um, America doesn't really have a very good infrastructure for funding and supporting daycares or elderly care. And families pretty much are forced to brunt most of the financial burden for getting that care for their kids. So But they need to pay the they need to pay for it most of the most of the payment. Yes, and it's trickier on I guess the supply side too, because running a daycare is actually a terrible business idea. Um labor costs are insane. For every three to five kids you need someone on staff, you know, because you're dealing with you know live kids. Right now it's been especially intense because you have to make sure that the kids keep their masks on and don't touch each other, which If you've ever been around a bunch of five-year-olds, you know that's impossible. Um, so oftentimes they can only afford to pay their staff like $11, $12 an hour. And a lot of people are just quitting now. I mean, I remember where I used to live in Michigan, the Burger King was hiring for $15 an hour. You know, if I could choose between flipping burgers or having to run around, you know, taking care of a bunch of kids, I'd much prefer to flip burgers. And that's not good for society because childcare is something that's, I think, very socially important. Yes, it really is because uh, childs are like the basis of the society, in my opinion. And wow, that was hard to hear because here in Mexico, well, we have the dip. We have the dip. And before AMLO, we had this child curse who were quite good, regular. I mean, I have a friend who has a kid and she uh, just take her kid to the uh, this childcare and it was okay. I mean, they fed her baby, they uh, kind of educated him, but then Amlo went into power and he said, nah, moms can take care of their kids. Let's cancel that shit. It doesn't work. Grandmas, grandparents can do it, according to the president. Grandparents. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's... I mean, that's the thing with austerity and not funding those things. Is that it's, I think it's one of those evil things the government can do. Because, you know, I have family who had similar issues, you know, where they defunded the daycare and suddenly, you know, they don't have childcare for their kid. 
And luckily, you know, my aunt, she works remotely, you know, she has home office. So, you know, she can take care of like my nephew, you know, and keep a pretty good eye on him, you know, step away from the computer if you need something. But most families in Mexico and America, you know, they don't have that privilege. You know, they have to actually go to work. And if they have to keep their kids home, they have to decide, you know, am I going to go to work and leave my kid unattended all day, which has all sorts of, you know, bad social consequences down the line. Or I don't work, and that has other social consequences because that person, usually a, a single woman, you know, they're not going to be able to advance in their career, they're not going to be able to finish their education, they're not going to be able to, like, contribute as much to the taxation system. It's overall a really bad situation. And I believe that, you know, funding these childcare centers almost always has more social benefit than the cost. Speaking of taxes, how are how is the the U.S. Congress and the U.S. government how are they gonna pay for this uh, infrastructure bill? Because so far I know it's not something extremely cheap. I mean, it is a, yeah. a pretty Trillions. pretty pretty big big amount of money. So how do they plan to pay this this idea? So I got this one number from the uh, CBO a. Uh, supposedly nonpartisan organization that does these numbers. Um, they predict it will add billions to the deficit over 10 years. So that's $350 billion, which, yeah, that's a lot. Um, one issue is the, it's been very politically costly to raise taxes. I think that's the case anywhere, but especially in America. Um, proposals to raise the corporate tax rate, you know, those were quickly non-starters with the Republicans and, you know, Sinema and Manchin. Um, so the answer to that is pretty much we'll deal with it 10, 10 years from now. It's like when you pay with your credit card and you say, please let my myself from the future be worried about what he's going to have to pay. Yeah, you know, hope that maybe by then we'll have a better, you know, taxation system. Maybe we won't let, you know, the rich people have all these tax loopholes. Amazon, maybe they'll pay corporate tax for once. But until then, you know, we have issues in the present. Okay, it kind of reminds me like the porfiriato, that when you have a debt and you die, uh, that debt comes with your children. And if your children dies, it comes with the baby. And it was like, why? I think it is going to happen like uh, in America because I'm seeing the cost for everything. And it's really, really expensive. I mean, like 110 billion for roads and bridges, 66 billion for railroads, uh, 65 billion for power grid, and many other numbers. I mean, Whoa. Okay, I'm very sorry. My internet just went out for about 20 seconds. Yeah, don't worry. No, don't worry. Uh, she was saying about the, the amounts, right? Can you please repeat the the amounts that are on the on the bill? Uh, yes. Yes, yeah, so according please? to this organization, um, they say $350 billion over 10 years. Okay, so... The deficit. Okay, so the, that is... So they are... They are waiting just to, so they are not worrying about the present. They are saying, hopefully the next administration has a better taxation system. 
that's how they plan to that's do it. That's usually how things go, you know, especially with how dysfunctional it is with the filibuster and everything. It's a miracle to just actually get a bill to pass. I mean, like I said, you know, if Ted Cruz doesn't like your legislation, he will literally, you know, read his kids' bedtime stories, you know, to stop you from finishing a vote on it. It's such a... Okay, that's a good parent. That's a good parent. At least he worries about Yeah, at, at least. You know, he may hate everyone else in America, but at least he wants his kids to feel loved. <laughs> okay. Oh, at least... That of the Go year, ahead. but not a congressman of the year, I guess? Uh, yeah, Ted Cruz is a Satan. Um, <laughs> fucking hate that guy. And fi my final... We, me too. Uh, my final question, if you don't mind, if you don't mind, what does Mitch McConnell think about this bill? Because he said that he wouldn't pass any bill that comes from the the Democrat Party. So, what does Mitch McConnell think about this legislation? So, there's an interesting dynamic going on between uh, McConnell and other Republicans. So, McConnell comes from a more older faction of the Republican Party, which I've heard called the traditionalist uh, side. And these are people who were Republicans before Trump, before the Tea Party. These are like the Bush Republicans, the Reagan Republicans. And their position is was originally, we're going to support the infrastructure package, but there's no way in hell they're going to support the reconciliation. Now, the newer, um, more radical Republicans, I guess we could say, who mostly have influence in the House, um, They're taking a more hardline position. They're saying in either of these bills, these are people like Kevin McCarthy, you know, they say that the Democrats, you know, they're treating these two things as tied together. So we can, if we if we vote for one, we're really voting for the other. Uh, now, the more conservative guys like McConnell, they're saying, you know, we, we can't just not govern. We need to do something. But they are pretty skeptical of Biden, the Democrats' intentions with this smaller bill. Okay. And what about the tax to reach in the Met Gala, Alexandro Casio Cortez? What does she think about this? Um, Alexandro Casio Cortez and the Progressive Caucus, you know, they've been pretty steadfast on not voting for that infrastructure bill unless they get to vote for the reconciliation before that. And they are willing, this could happen on Monday, actually. Um, I was looking at my notes earlier and things are moving fast. Um, On Monday, there's a possibility that they'll bring the infrastructure package to vote before the, recon the reconciliation. In that case, AOC and all the progressives will just vote no. Like, they're, they're willing to tank the whole thing to get what they want. Wow. I mean, I don't think I was reading a, a column about it, and, I, and they said that These 40-something years that Joe Biden or 60 years that Joe Biden has been in Congress, then he's a, pre a pretty good conciliator between, you know, the parties. He tries to do this as a bipartisan. Uh, so, you know, trying to bring back that old U.S. political system where there was really a bipartisan uh, movement from the 80s. I don't remember the 80s, yeah. 70s. I don't remember exactly. They, they usually used to be like, okay, so... This is an American or a U.S. Uh, interest, so we really need to get up. Okay, so they really did it. Then you know, with the later on, they started to do it like 
like that. So uh, you are a Republican, I don't vote for you. You are a Democrat, I don't vote for you. That's how it really works today. Yeah, and that's kind of Joe Biden's personality. Like you say, he comes from that era where they literally would like, I, I read this in a biography of his, they had like a special dining room in Senate for lunches where they specifically reserved like a certain amount of seats for Democrats and a certain amount of seats for Republicans. So if you went to eat there, you would like actually eat with your opposition. And Biden says he misses those days. Now, of course, like you also say, the modern situation is so different. Right, the Tea Party, we had Trump, we had Obama, you know, pushing progressivism closer to the mainstream, Bernie Sanders. So at the same time, you know, it's it's really hard to reconciliate those interests. Um, Biden has been pushing pretty hard now for some sort of uh, reconciliation, I guess you could call it. Uh, I know he recently reached out to Cinema and Mansion and specifically asked them like. What's the price tag for a reconciliation bill that you will vote for? If not, $3.5 trillion. You know, give me a number. And I assume what he meant by that was, give me that number, and I'll talk to AOC and Pelosi and all those other people and make it happen. Oh. Wow. wow. Pretty, pretty big deal. Yes, a pretty big deal. I also read that Joe Biden is a really good conciliator and he seems like a very diplomat uh, guy, if I can say old guy, guy, I don't know. But yes, he seems pretty diplomatic, uh, very good with words. So let's hope for the best, like I always say. Yeah, I mean, it would be really sad if this doesn't follow through, but even if they get a smaller version of this bill, it'll still mean a lot of really good things for Americans. Do you think that this is the most important legislation for Joe Biden? Yeah, big time. Especially right now with the blundered Afghanistan situation, you know, all, all these like scandals he's had lately. His, his approval ratings, you know, in the negative. He needs, you know, a big win like this. And this legislation was pretty much what he campaigned on. So if it fails, then the Biden presidency fails. Okay, so do you think that it's a, like a lifesaver for Biden's administration? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it will like, you know, suddenly boost his approval rating back to the positive like it was, you know, the start. But if it fails, then Biden and Kamala are going to be in trouble, you know, the next election. Okay, f f exactly. That was, I wanted to ask you that. I wanted to change the question from... At Joe Biden's administration <clears throat> to the Democrat Party. Do you think that if this is something I was reading with uh, uh, a columnist that I really like to read, Pablo Giriat, and he was saying that after the the Democrat Party won the uh, the California's revoke, that they won, that they kept, kept they, they they are still in charge. This is how that was. Sorry, a very big boost of confidence. Now. If they lose this legislation, do you think that that confidence that went rising and rising from winning this, uh, this election, I don't know how to say it, now is going to come down after that a big failure in the in the House and in the Senate? I, I guess I have to read that column to see exactly what argument they made, but I would disagree on how they characterized the California win. Uh, that election was a pretty safe Democrat one. Uh, California is a very strongly, you know, liberal state. And the guy the Republicans picked, Larry Elder, 
was the worst possible candidate you could pick for California. Just awful. Like, what the hell were they thinking? You know, if they got like someone more moderate, maybe they could have snuck him through, but not Larry Elder. So the victory really just kind of seemed like, you know, st- business as usual. You know, California's liberal. So without that, I say just looking at the recent blunders that the administration has had again. They they need that confidence, you know. I mean, I haven't felt so optimistic myself, you know, in the last few weeks. And if this doesn't work out, then like I said, next you know election comes around, there's going to be trouble. That was something that we commented on the previous podcast about the California election. And Alex told that it was like a safe election and it was like a positive vote for Democrats. So it's interesting that you mentioned this. It's really, really interesting to see your point of view of this topic. What about if we change to the next topic since um, this is going to be a very big legislation next week? Um, so hopefully the U.S. from the in 10 years does not regret of this election or it does regret. So we are going to see after you have to pay the interest. <laughs> so the next the next question the next question sorry the next topic so also regarding the house and the senate uh but with a foreign ally for the united states which is the i think that the biggest ally they have in the in asia uh which is israel so what can you tell us about what is what are why the u.s uh congress is voting for israel so so they were originally um, going to fund the Iron Dome with a $1 billion investment. For those who don't know, the Iron Dome is a missile defense system that Israel uses to shoot down what are supposedly uh, rockets from Gaza. Um, I did some research on this, and there are some like Israeli weapons experts who are saying that what this government says about Iron Dome isn't entirely true. But I don't know enough to really push that too much so i'm just going to stick to the official narrative uh the iron dome it's supposed to be a 95 percent of success rate you know the hamas shoots a rocket and tries to hit israeli civilians and the system shoots it down you know that's i think that's good you know whatever you stand on like the, the conflict with israel and palestine people not getting blow up is pretty good the issue is one billion dollars you know, with yeah. I, I mean, so far I know they 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 ran out of missiles after this previous uh, skirmish that they had. Uh, well, it wasn't a skirmish; it was a f- fight. Sorry, it's a real fight. It was a real war. But what I've tried to say, they they ran out, so they need to build more. So that's the legislation. What it's for? No, to refill. I mean, yeah, to refill those missiles. Those missiles are really expensive. If I'm remembering correctly, it's like fifty thousand dollars for just one uh, rocket, you know, to, one interceptor. So whenever like some guy in Gaza, you know, makes literally like some rocket out of shit in his house and fires it in the direction of Israel, that's fifty thousand dollars gone. Fifty thousand dollars. That's our. I think that it's that's the uh, uh, annual uh, salary from a teacher. No, or around. That salary from a teacher. Yeah. Oh, wait. No, I'm getting the numbers wrong. 50 million. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. okay, sorry. That's the amount of a hundred yeah, t-shirts. I was like, I was hurting myself. I was like, no, it's actually too low. It's fifty million, yeah, for a battery. So they're funding with a billion. So which means that with fifty, they're only buying. So with if you buy twenty, you're buying what the fuck? Why? Uh, what? It's expensive, yeah. And um, the bill passed, you know, pretty much unanimously, except for nine votes. Um, the reason they, they did it this way was originally being bundled in another bill, another uh, taxing spending bill. But a couple of progressives, you know, Ilhan Omar, Rashid Tlaib, and a couple others, they said, no way. Um, we don't want to do unconditional support for Israel. We want to see more accountability on human rights. You know, more efforts for peace and reconciliation in the region. And they were going to tank that other bill unless they removed it. So the Democrats, they split it, said, we're just going to do a vote on this issue, pass it. And then for the other bill, it's not going to be a problem. Now, what's tricky was that, you know, when you have only nine people voting against something, there's going to be a lot of drama, you know, especially with such a heated topic like Israel. Yes, especially because it's very, um, it was a trend, like later this year. And it is a geopolitical situation that it's pretty hard to swallow, if I can say that. Because it stands at uh, the point where United States is supporting like the enemy of a country, which other countries are supporting and are uh, trying to make the well, Palestine to gain this place in this world. So it's very interesting for me to read about this, about the geopolitical stand of, uh, on United States and Israel. Yeah, it's a complicated relationship. Exactly. Mm -hmm. but, it, but it's like a relationship that after all the enemies that the United States have in the whole world, especially in the, in this, in the Middle East and, and in Asia, uh, having a friend like Israel means a lot for them because they are the only, they are one of the most powerful armies that there are in Asia, you know, after China's, after India's, but they have a very good relationship with Israel. So they are really, I mean, that's how big they is. I mean, they are breaking the relationship right now with France because, you know, a, a nuclear submarine, but they, they prefer to have the Israel's than France's uh, as an ally. Yeah, it's pretty complicated. It's a really long and, and sensitive topic, you know. Um, there's, a, there's like a really powerful like pro-Israel lobby in the United States. And we have to be careful when talking about this, of course, because we some like psychos who'll push the idea that, oh, actually Israel controls the U.S. government and the elders of Zion and all that anti-Semitic bullshit, you know. Um, I hate that you even have to like, you know, make that uh, disclaimer but there are people who believe that. But you know, setting that aside, there there is a pretty influential lobby. You know, there's a lot of weapons companies in Israel and the U.S. who profit immensely from you know all this military aid. In fact, in a lot of ways, you know, when the U.S. sends money to Israel, what they're really doing is giving a lot of money to American companies to send equipment to them. So yeah, you know, that's how you get the situation where. What, yeah, it was like only nine, I think, people vote against it. It's a very, very strong like political tradition in the U.S. Like, no matter what happens, we're friends with Israel. May God bless the war? 
May God bless the world. It's like the when you're at the kindergarten and you see like this chubby kid that it's being bullied and you're like, come on, let's be friends. And then the chubby kid grows up and he's like the rock. Yeah, he becomes the rock. And the rock is Israel. And the kid that saved the, uh, the chubby kid is the United States. So he has a great ally. And, he are, and though they are very good friends, but the world hates him. So I kind of see it like that. Yeah. And I guess one very specific, like, interesting detail that came up during this vote was how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez voted. You know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she's been like the face of left-wing politics in America. You know, now that Bernie Sanders, you know, he's he's getting older, you know, there's there needs to be a new, like, I guess, leader or figurehead for it. And AOC has kind of fil been filling that role. So it made, a, it made news headlines, you know, that she showed up literally crying and just voted present on the bill. Not no, not yes, present. So present is like, uh, I don't, it's like, I don't vote for yes or no. Yeah, I just, just, I'm here. It's like, what's up? <laughs> I'm didn't know about know. I'm here. <laughs> What's up yeah. to, to Pelosi? What's up? To, <laughs> I to Nancy Pelosi. What's up, girl? Yeah, it's just like seeing Dinner received, tonight? you know, just double check mark. <laughs> On WhatsApp, the yeah, blue, yeah, the blue. It's, it's literally like that, blue, you know. Wow, I didn't know about that position in the U.S. Congress, to be honest. Yeah, and. It's usually specifically to avoid political heat from a controversial vote, you know? And if you look at it superficially, that could be what AOC was trying to do, you know? Um, New York, you know, has a pretty sizable Jewish population. Jewish people, you know, are tend to be pretty supportive of Israel. So if she had aspirations for, say, the Senate or if in the redistricting, you know, changes the demographics of her district, she could get in trouble if she, you know, took a firm anti-Israel stance. Now, the issue, though, is that she showed up crying and made a big show of voting present. So it was kind of obvious how she felt about it. Yeah, and it's also all about PR. What you said about uh, losing the part of Queens, New York, all of those districts. So PR, if she cries, she gets more voting and people are like, oh my God, she feels something. She's a real politician. She cares about us. You know, but in this case, that's something that I really don't like from the US political system, that they can really change the districts, which was a very good idea from a, I think that it was a Republican, no, a member from the Republican Party. There is a name, but I don't remember the name of this, you know, of this. Gerrymandering, thank you very much. That's the one. Uh, that's something that it's kind of weird, but you know, it was a very smart way to really keep your vote from in your district. I mean, that was very smart, awful, but yeah, smart. you know, just like you see some really weird looking congressional districts like Daniel Crenshaw's, you know, it's like a very thin line and then like a little circle at the end. There's no order or reason for it to look like that. It's just like where all the Republicans live. That's where his ear represents. <laughs> and I'm going to keep just a 1% of black people in this district of 99.9% of yeah, white like people. Yeah, like split up you know, like the people who might not vote for you in a bunch of different districts. So they will never get their own politician. Like that's, that's gerrymandering. Yeah. 
that's in, in extremely smart, but that's evil. awful. I mean, that's awful. But, uh, evil. I mean, there's no word. This isn't necessarily a gerrymandering situation, though. Um, you know, every so often the U.S. census, and then based on the results, you know, they have to redraw the districts. And this process can be gerrymandered, but in a Democrat state like New York, where AOC represents, that's probably not going to be the case, at least not for Democrats. Um, the real issue is that, you know, New York has just changed since, you know, the last census, since the last redistricting. So the demographics are probably going to be different for her. She's going to have to, like, find new support groups, you know, who might vote against or for her. And another key thing is that she might run for Senate soon. There's rumors that she's going to primary Chuck Schumer, who's currently the Senate Majority Leader. And if you're going to primary Chuck Schumer, you are going to need a pretty good foreign policy platform. And that includes being supportive of Israel. So that that's next year. No, those elections for the Senate and on the 2020. Yes, that's scheduled for it. If she decides to do it, I hope she doesn't. It kind of seems suicidal to do, you know, like she, I don't think she would win. And I kind of feel that a lot of ways, this thing she did voting present, was a way to try to keep political capital after that vote you know it's like she wanted to have her cake and but not eat it you know um if she voted yes you know she makes her progressive allies happy you know hell yeah aoc stands for palestine and everything if she votes no you know she keeps like the the pro-zionist the pro-israel lobby happy and all all the people who support israel happy but pisses off, you know, a lot of her more activist base, the people who actually go out and canvass for her. So voting present kind of seemed like a way to try and, like, avoid conflict and keep everyone happy. But it really had the opposite effect because what voting present says is, you know, I'm not going to make a stand for you, neither you. You know, it, it came off as very really opportunistic. But that's quite a difficult position to be in, uh, especially when you mentioned that she wants to run as a senator. So it's kind of difficult if she wants to win uh, both sides. It's very, very difficult. And it reminds me of uh, the decision that Peñanito made with the uh, Reforma Energética, where he says, you ustedes que hubieran hecho. I'm thinking about that. So uh, I stick with the PR situation that she voted present and cried in front of everyone because that's what makes uh, uh makes her more human-like more like uh empathetic with also about the met gala when she wore that dress of tax to reach yeah uh, many people were agree uh agree with that so uh it makes her more human-like but i i kind of think that didn't work out though because you know progressives they were just pissed that she voted you know present like there were other members of the squad like ilhan omar rashida Tlaib, you know they voted no you know they took the stand and for ilhan omar you know they've already been slandered her as this like crazy anti-semite you know they've heard all these like awful attacks and despite that you know she went up there and just voted for her ideals you know that's something i respect you know, I think that what AOC did is she tried to make everyone happy, but made nobody happy. Because, like, the people who are for Israel, they're going to see her crying while voting present, and they're going to be like, oh, I'm not stupid, you know? I know you don't support us. 
switching from Nancy, from I'm sorry, from uh, AOC to another woman that I really admire in this in the house, which is the leader right now, uh, Pelosi. I really like her because she is a very clear politician. I really love when she uh, broke the uh, Donald Trump's speech, which was to me one of the best things that I have ever seen. That was really badass. I mean, and when she clapped like that, I mean, that's amazing. That's a really, really powerful woman. So what does she say about this bill on the um, Israel uh, Iron Dome? I forgot the name, sorry. Um, It was unanimous support. Um, The second, I I believe that it was delegated more to the second ranking Democrat to whip the votes for it. I don't remember his name, you know, right on memory. But it was one of those things where Republican, Democrat, we support it, you know. Like I said, Israel, you know, supporting Israel is just something that will always happen in American politics, you know. They're, like you guys say, one of our best allies in the Middle East. You know, we have a really close relationship. They stand firm, you know, as like a as a check on like other Middle Eastern powers and terrorism and growing power in China and Asia. You know, no matter what, Nancy Pelosi, Kevin McCarthy, Trump, Biden, they're going to support Israel. So, anything else that we want to discuss about this? Ah, another war to, you know, another support to a war after all the attempts that the United States has has done to support wars in other countries. Yes, they bring the peace by the force. Yeah, so, democracy. Uh, we, that's your fault for having oil. I mean, that's the answer from the United States. So, anything else that we would like to say before we continue, Andrea? <clears throat> I think not. This is very educational, very entertaining, and it is good to see different point of view, especially from someone who knows American politics from the inside, who was a volunteer for Bernie Sanders and knows how to deal with it. So thank you very much, Connor. This was very, very awesome for me. And the best part to me is that uh, this is the first time that we really have international news. We always say that we have international news, but we never cover it. We always keep with the Congress, with the Senate from this country, Mexico. from Mexico. So AMLO, yeah, we keep most of the time. So this is the first time that we really, really speak about the international uh, news. So thank you very much, Connor. Well, thank you for having me on, you know, so this is really fun. Um, I'm glad of the opportunity to explain, you know, how my country's politics works. Um, and yeah, again, I really appreciate like the opportunity to be here, and I'm glad that you know, I guess it kind of feels like an honor almost to like be the first, you know, special guest on this show. Thanks to you for coming, which is the best part of the week because we can invite you, but you decided to come. Uh, that's the best part. Mm-hmm. You're honoring us with your presence. Ooh. I mean, I feel honored. Me too. Well, so. Uh, thank you very much for listening this week uh, with this special guest. And hopefully, as Andrea always says, it comes better with the time. Exactly. Yes, let's keep hustling. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yay. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much and see you next week. See you next week, guys. Bye.